All right. Kingdom Heart Matters, Perfecting Love. So we're finishing a section here of the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus leads us to this, this pinnacle where he says, I want you to be perfect just like my Father in heaven is perfect. I don't know about you, whenever I read verse 48 of chapter 5, I get overwhelmed and intimidated, thinking, like, how could I ever possibly meet this standard of perfection that Jesus has laid out for us? And we want to remember that when he says, be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect, really he is, he is talking about all of his teachings up to this point, which have, are culminating today in a matter of love. And so as we look at this passage, we understand that true children of God are characterized by a growing capacity to love even their enemies. Even their enemies. I bet if I went out on the street and I started surveying, surveying people and asked them, do you love everybody? They'd say, oh yeah, I love everybody, right? Because they know that they're supposed to love everybody. They're not supposed to hate anybody. But when it gets down to it, they love people close to them We love people close to us, and we love people who make us feel good about ourselves. That when somebody begins to compromise how we feel about ourselves, it's not as easy to love them anymore. In some senses, they're enemy. But today we're going to see that Jesus Christ calls us to love even our enemies, just like our Father in heaven loves his enemies. You know, love is a big deal in the Scriptures, and we we mention this often, Because it is a big deal, right? And we want to focus on what Jesus focuses on. We want to keep the main thing the main thing. And Jesus is asked toward the end of his ministry. They're trying to trap him. What is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest. Love God with all that you are. And again, if I ask people, do you love God? Well, of course I love God. Well, how do I know that? How do I know that you really love God? Well, Jesus tells us. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love is a big deal. Later on in that week, the night before he's crucified, as he's teaching his his followers what they need to do when he's gone, he focuses, guess what? He focuses on love. And he says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So there's this inward love that's in view, this love of those who are followers of Christ that will tell the world that you are a follower of Christ. Well, here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus broads it. If you're a child of the kingdom, if you are a child of God, like we just sang, then you will love even your enemies. From time to time, I like to pose this question. If you were brought before a judge being accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to find you guilty of that charge. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh yeah, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead. I would say, even the demons believe that. They believe in that historical fact. The question is, is, has it so radically changed your life that you are loving others as you've been called to love others, even your enemies, that's radically different than the world? Would they find you guilty of being a Christian? Another way of phrasing this, but what sets you apart from the world? I mean, what makes you different than the people at work that kind of do good deeds? They're just nice people. They like to help out. What makes you different than them that someone would say, oh, that person's different, they're a Christian? 
Well, Jesus lays it out for us today. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, this high point in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? And that really is a key phrase. What are you doing more than the next person? What are you doing more than your coworker? What separates you from the rest of the world? He says, even the pagans love those who love them. And here it is. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. That is powerful scripture. It's a high calling. It's a calling that validates our membership in the family of God. Right? He says right in the middle, he says, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. What is it that distinguishes you as a children, as a child of God, as a member of God's family? It's how you love. Do you love? Do you only love those who are easy to love? Do you only love those that you surround yourself with willingly? Do you only love those who make you feel good about yourselves? Or do you love people who mistreat you? So as we look at this particular passage, as we go through it verse by verse, this concept of us being his children is going to be in the center. So I'm not going to cover verse 45 when we get here, 45a. This is right at the center. Are you a child of the kingdom? Well, let's see. Let's find out. As a child of the king, you are to love truth and love according to the truth. As a child of the king, as a child of the kingdom, as somebody who's different than the rest of the world, you are to love truth and love according to truth. Right? Love isn't just willy-nilly, it's guided by truth. So we need to know what the truth is. And that's the problem. The Pharisees and the scribes, the spiritual leaders, the, guy, the guys who knew the Old Testament back and forth, they knew all the law, they knew the oral tradition, they kept messing things up. And Jesus says, you have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is the misunderstanding. So I have this picture of these two guys, a picture of the patriarchy up here, right? the people everybody loves to hate. These two guys are, there's a picture of a Pharisee and a teacher of the law, supposedly, at least that when I Googled it, Pharisee, teacher of the law, PNG, this is what came up. But we have to remember the context. These guys, these teachers, these, the spiritual elite, they kept taking scripture and twisting it, and they were teaching people wrongly. And Jesus says, you've heard it said from these guys, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, is that true or is that false? Is it partly true or is it partly false? Is it all true? Right? We have to know truth and love truth that we're a child of the king. Are both statements true? Is there anything left out? You've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So, so the, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, they weren't operating out of a vacuum. They were saying, love your neighbor and hate your enemy for a reason. Right? So somewhere in the Old Testament was written, love your neighbor. Well, the place to go to really, I think, is Leviticus chapter 19. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor, frankly, so that you will not share 
in their guilt. Now, how many of you think about this on a regular basis that I'm going to rebuke my neighbor, frankly? We don't do that, right? Okay, there's loving and there's really loving, right? Verse 18, do not seek revenge. We talked about that earlier this morning. Or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but, but love your neighbor what, as yourself, right? You've heard it was said, you need to, let's back up here, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor. What do they leave out? As yourself, right? We're all really good at taking care of ourselves. Most of us today have already done a really good job of taking care of ourselves. I know I did. First thing I did was got up and took care of myself, made my coffee, got myself an energy bar. You know, I got my warm fuzzies from my cats. I was taking care of myself. We do a really good job of taking care of ourselves. No problem with that. And so the standard of love is love your neighbor, what? As yourself. Now, it's a, a horrible, gross distortion of Scripture to say that you have to learn to love yourself before you can love your neighbor. That is wrong, okay? We already love ourselves plenty. That's the problem. You may not like the way you feel about yourself, but we love ourselves by the way we take care of ourselves. And so the standard here in Leviticus that the scribes and Pharisees was leaving out was, as yourself, okay, love your neighbor. Well, they had that down, love your neighbor. Well, they left out the part that says love your enemy, and really that's in Leviticus chapter 19 as well, just a few verses down. So aren't we good about picking and choosing those things that we want to really take in and obey and follow? You know, those things that, nah, that's not too comfortable, I don't want to do that one. Well, Leviticus 19.34, we should probably remember this given the context that we're living in, right? The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your, as a native, your native born. In other words, treat those born in other countries just like you would treat your neighbor. Love them as yourself, for you are foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So it's not written just once like the scribes and the Pharisees could have left that out. No, it's more than once. And they were teaching, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Well, let's, let's move forward here and see what it says about enemies, right? We talked about loving ourselves. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. That sounds like a loving thing to do, doesn't it? You know that person who keeps disrespecting you, that person who keeps throwing his garbage in your front yard, that person who's loud late at night, that person who was always rude to you, if his ox wanders off, don't just watch it walk off. Go get it for him. Love him by getting his ox. Be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you falling down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help him with it. There's other places in the Scripture that clearly tell us that we need to love our enemies. This is not something that Jesus just made up. There's some other verses there to let you know that. So we clearly see love our neighbor, but what isn't written by the, or what isn't uh, taught orally by the scribes and Pharisees is love your neighbor as yourself or loving your enemy. So a few questions might come to mind, right? So if God says love your enemy as well as your neighbor, why is it that some places in the Bible we see clearly that God directs His people to destroy the enemies of His people? Like, how do we reconcile that? I write there, but didn't God direct His people to kill and expel the inhabitants living in the promised land? Right, we read about that in, in the book of Joshua. Like, they're, 
getting rid of the people that are there, the enemies of God. So, so how do we reconcile that? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, pretty famous guy, who was killed for his faith in Germany, writes this, the wars of Israel were only holy wars, were the only holy wars in history. For they were wars of God against the world's idols. Right? One way we understand the fact that God expelled the people from the promised land was that they were idolaters. They hated God. They hated what God stood for. They were damaging the land. They were damaging the people around them. He's like, they need to go. It is not this enmity which Jesus, which Jesus condemns, for then he would have condemned the whole history of God's dealings with his people. So we have to wrestle through God saying, love your neighbor, love your enemy, but the children of Israel fought against the enemies, expelling them from the promised land. Well, and that's a very simplistic answer, and I could talk about that more. But what about the Psalms, where the writer hates those who hate God, right? They're what we call imprecatory Psalms. They're Psalms where the writer is confessing the feelings in his heart, and he's upset with the enemies of God. He's very transparent, very raw about his feelings about the enemies of God. For instance, Psalm 139. Beautiful psalm talking about God's omnipresence, his omniscience, right? We sing the song that, that Mike wrote. But at the end of the psalm, where does this come from? This is a beautiful psalm. Why is this at the end of the psalm? And I think, in some senses, the first part of Psalm 139 is written so that he can write this part. God, you know me. You know my heart. You know what's going on in here. What I'm about to write is consistent with who you are as a holy God. And so in Psalm 139, we read this, search me, I'm sorry, do I not, let me back up a little bit more, if only you, God, would slay the wicked, away from me, you who are bloodthirsty, they speak of you with evil intent, your adversaries misuse your name. He continues, do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but complete or perfect hatred for them. I count them my enemies. So how does this, it seems so disconnected from what Jesus is teaching us. How is it that the psalmist can write this and God can command us to love our enemies, but here the psalmist is saying, I hate those who hate you. What do we do with that? Well, somebody much smarter than me explains this better. A guy named John Stott says this, the psalmist speaks not with any personal animosity, but as a representative of God's chosen people, Israel. He regards the wicked as the enemies of God, counts them as his own enemies, only because... He has completely identified himself with the cause of God. He hates them because he loves God, right? So, so it's hard for us to reconcile that within God there can be perfect love and pure hatred. I think it's appropriate for God to hate those things that destroy his creation. It's okay to hate things that destroy the beauty of God's creation. It's okay to hate those things to destroy the pure worship of the true and living God. All right, so those are tough things to wrestle through. I want to get through that, okay, but I want to focus on what Jesus' main point is here. And as the psalmist writes this, okay, he is, as this passage says, he has a pure heart. He's speaking for God. So the first thing we see is a child of God As a child of the king, you are to love truth and love according to the truth. 
Right? You have to love truth. You have to desire truth. You have to want truth because truth teaches us how to live. Truth teaches us how to love. We don't just love willy-nilly. Right? Love has definition. Love has purpose. And we need to know those things. And people will try to mislead us when they speak in words other than the Scripture. So we have to seek to know God's Word. Well, secondly, we know this. As a child of the King, you are called and empowered to love those who hate and persecute you. The fact that Jesus tells us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us means that He will give us the power that we need to do what He's asked us to do. As I said last week when I was quoting Augustine, Dear God, command what you will, but will what you command. In other words, God, your word is true, your laws are perfect, you command as you wish, but God, you need to give me the wherewithal to accomplish what you call me to accomplish. And so Jesus says this, but I tell you, he clarifies this. He says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Probably one of the most difficult verses in all of the Bible to live out. So what does he mean by love and pray? What is meant by love? Well, all of our definitions of love flow from the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. When Scripture defines love, it says this, this is love. Not that you love God with some kind of fuzzy way, but that God loved you and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for your sins. This is love. So as we look at love, it is a generous, warm, costly self-sacrifice for another's good. When God sent His Son to die in your place for the sins that you've committed, it wasn't some cold, calculated, sovereign move like a chess game. It was the, the warm, heart, generous heart of a Father who cares for His creation. That He would love you so much that He would give up what's most dear to Himself, His Son, to die in your place so that you can have life. So that's how we want to look at love. That's how we want to understand love. But the objects of, those, of this, this love are the enemies of God and your enemies as well. Love your enemies. So how do we do that? How do, what does it mean to love? Right? We need to understand what is meant by love. Well, firstly, I'd like to talk about a material love, and then I'd like to talk about a spiritual love. And I think the material love is given to us in the text if you go down to verse 45b. Here's how God loves his enemies. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You know all the atheists in the world that hate God, that are repul- I mean, it's funny, they hate God. They, they don't believe in God, but there's somebody they hate, right? And they hate people who follow God. They, but anyway, I don't go there. It's, they hate God. People hate God. They hate that there is a creator that they have to give an account to who has given his law. They don't, they don't want to have to respond to him. They hate him. They live in rebellion to him, in rebellion to his word. And with every second of hatred that they have, God is giving them breath so that they can spew words of hatred towards him. That's love. 
He's giving rain to cause the crops to grow so that they can have food to eat. He's giving families and children and jobs and sunrises and sunsets and beautiful vistas all from the loving hand of God to people who hate Him. It's love. We call that common grace. It's undeserved. It's given commonly to all people. It's material. So as we think about loving our enemies, right, it's, it's, it's okay, God, you say, love my enemies and pray for them, okay? So praise, we'll talk about this in a second. I can, I can pray on my own, okay? I don't have to be around them. But if you're going to materially bless your enemy, you have to be in their presence, You have to know what they need. You have to be ready to meet that need in some form or fashion. I went through a period in my life where I felt like I was being hated, like horribly. And I came to the point where I was like, God, I don't know how to bless this person. You've told me to love them. How do I do this? Again, command what you will but will what you command. You've called me to love. How do I do that, Father? So there is a material aspect to this, right? And Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 12. He says, we looked at the first part of this in the first service where we say, you know, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Leave it to the God to get vengeance, right? But he continues, he says, on the contrary, instead of seeking revenge against your enemies, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Well, there's a good idea. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And by the way, the side effect of doing this, if you demonstrate godly love towards your enemy, guess what it's going to do? It's going to put heaping, uh, heat burning coals on their head. But the principle there is do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, we was talking earlier with uh, Lena about uh, loving on the kids over the Hamtramck homes. I absolutely love the kids there. I love them, love them, love them. Love playing games with them, love hanging out with them, talking to them. But they don't get along all the time. And when they're wrong, it's like instant retaliation, right? So, so this, is, this is the verse we give them all the time. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. 1 Peter 3.9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. The context of 1 Peter is how do I glorify God in a world where I am suffering, how can, I, how can I live differently than the world? Well, do this. Don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Does it get any harder than that, friends? I mean, really? Is that your first response when somebody is evil towards you is to bless them? It's not mine. And then he goes on and says, this is why you do this, because you're a child of God. You claim to be a child of God. You're a child of the kingdom. You were called so that you may inherit a blessing. So material love. Love your enemies. Then he says, pray for those who persecute you. That's the spiritual aspect. So so how do I pray for my enemy? Dear God, send fire from heaven down to smite my enemies. Smash their teeth against the rocks. It's in the Psalms. Right? The disciples of Jesus, talking about the Samaritans, should we call down fire from heaven on them right now? Jesus is like, no, I don't think it's a good idea. I don't know what he said, but he was like, what? Spiritual love. 
He says, pray for those who persecute you. Let me give you four different prayers, okay? Four different ways that you can pray for your enemy, assuming you have some. One, prayer of thankfulness. This this is so countercultural. This just flips the world upside. This is so amazingly crazy, right? Somebody insults you. Somebody persecutes you. And here's the response. God, thank you for that person. Thank you. You know why? Because you told me I'm blessed when people insult me and persecute me. And they falsely say all kinds of evil things against me, because, against you because of me. I mean, at least Jesus here turns to a more spiritual angle, right? They say evil things against you because of me. I'm like, they say evil things against me because of me. And I'm running upstairs at work trying to find out who it is so I can get up in their face. <laughs> a prayer of thankfulness. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Thank you. Hey, do you know what? You, you just, you really reamed me out. You just tore me up. You just maligned my character because of Christ. Guess what? I'm just heaping up rewards in heaven. Thank you. Another prayer would be a prayer of forgiveness, right? Jesus so wonderfully demonstrates this when he's hanging on the cross. When they came to the place called the skull, Golgotha or Calvary, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. As I was meditating on this passage, you know what came to my mind? The only possible way that God could forgive them as Jesus prayed would be for those men who nailed him to the cross to embrace Jesus Christ as Messiah after the fact. That's the only way God could forgive them. That's pretty amazing, I thought. I was like, wow. But so Jesus, he's having his flesh torn by nails. His feet, his hands torn by nails. They pop the pole up into the ground. The nails pull. Father, forgive them. It's the same prayer of Stephen as they were throwing stones at them, at him. Father, forgive. They don't know what they're doing. So a prayer of forgiveness. How about a prayer of salvation? God, I remember when I was your enemy. There was a time when I was alienated and hostile towards you. I hated you. But your Holy Spirit came down into my heart and awakened my heart and gave me a desire for you. I was your enemy. But then you reconciled me to yourself through the death of your Son, Jesus Christ. So we pray for our enemies, that they would come to know Christ, that they'd be reconciled to their Father. Because their hostility, listen, your enemy's hostility towards you is the least of their problems. Because they're hostile towards God, and God is hostile towards them. And that hostility has to be removed, and the only way that it can be removed is if they come to faith in Jesus Christ. The prayer of salvation. And lastly, the prayer of blessing. Or do you not, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness? forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. And this is where I really had to go when I was praying, when I was going through this time when I, I felt persecuted by somebody. I began to pray for their blessing. God, bless, bless their lives spiritually, bless their lives materially, bless their marriage, bless their kids, bless everything that's going on in their life because I wanted them to come to repentance. It's the prayer of blessing. So Jesus Christ says, 
Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Love them materially. Love them spiritually. Because through prayer in the Spirit, we have the power to love our enemies, right? We have to pray in the Spirit. We have to plug into the power of the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, as a child of the King, you are called to love even when you're not loved in return. This is, this is really hard for me, right? Most of us operate on like a quid pro quo. Like, like okay, when you like work hard to love somebody, and they like, there's like a no response, is, does that make it more difficult to keep loving them? It does, doesn't it? We like that scratch on the back, that reciprocation. Quid pro quo is this for that. I'll give you this, you give me that. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. So are you able to love others when they don't love you in return? When the kids were little, uh, our first winter in Michigan was the winter of 1999. I don't know if any of you older people remember, this is a lot of snow, a ton of snow. And uh, there weren't any hills right there where we lived in the park, so we would put the kids in sleds and kind of just drag them around the streets, you know, up and down the sidewalks. And we were coming up a street back towards the house, pulled the sled. There was a, somebody had shoveled their driveway, and there was like a hill there, right? So I took the sled up the hill and down the hill. Remember this, Kristen? And it knocked snow into the driveway. And we're just playing with the kids, having a good time. All of a sudden, I hear the door open. I worked all day to shovel that driveway. Why would you do that? I'm going to slip and fall and break my neck word. I took the kids home, got my shovel, walked back over there, and I shoveled the snow back up. Don't shovel it too well, because if you get down to the cement, it's going to get all icy. I was like, like, what do I do with this? I couldn't win for losing. No matter what I did to love this person and try to be nice, I wasn't going to win. And as you know, as I read earlier, God causes the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous, the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, day after day after day after day after day, and they continue to reject him. And yet he continues to love them. And so Jesus draws this distinction between worldly love and love that characterizes the children of heaven. Right? He's like, If you only love those who love you, you're not any different than the world. Look at this. He says in verse 36, he says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that, right? So the most despised people in their culture were the people who worked for the IRS because they were turncoats. They're like their neighbors. They're all of a sudden in their business taking their money. And even those people that nobody likes, they get along together. They love each other. And he says in verse 47, if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? You're no different than the world. Unless you choose to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, even when they don't respond the way that you want them to respond. One commentator says this, to return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return evil, good for evil, is divine. This is where we want to be. Divine, returning good for evil. And lastly, I think my numeration is off here. This will be number four, not five, okay? Number four. As a child of the king, 
you are called to love perfectly. Right? We need to love according to truth. We need to love our enemies and pray for them. We need to love even when we're not loved in return. And we need to love perfectly. We see this in verse 48. He says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That sounds eerily familiar. In Leviticus, God says, Be holy, because I am holy. When God says, Be holy, because I am holy, guess what he's saying? He says, I want you to manifest who I am perfectly to the world. Pure holiness is pure perfection. That's what it is. Be holy, for I am holy. This word for perfect is the same word that's used to describe an animal sacrifice that's offered up on the Day of Atonement. Perfectly, spotless, without blemish. And Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now what? I can't do anything perfectly except be less than perfect, right? What is it that I do perfectly? I can't think of anything that I do perfectly. And Jesus says, be perfect. Why would Jesus command this? What's going on? Well, remember the audience that he's talking to, right? The Sermon on the Mount is written to address people who thought they were really spiritual, right? So as Jesus speaks to the Pharisees and the scribes and other people around him, they have this sense that spiritually, somehow, they can be good enough to enter into the presence of God. That somehow they can, they can be saved because they're Jews, because, because they follow certain teachings, because they do everything the way they should. And Jesus is like, no, you just don't understand. You're not ever going to be good enough on your own to enter into the kingdom. Right? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, it says this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the most righteous person you know, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus is trying to let us know and let the, the listeners know that, hey, unless you are perfect, you will not enter into the kingdom. And so we all fall short of that, right? And that's why I keep teaching us week after week, the only way to enter the kingdom of heaven is to cry out to Jesus Christ in faith and ask him to give you a new heart, a pure heart, a heart that desires him. And he'll do that if you just cry out to him. So Jesus is teaching how desperately we need righteousness to enter into the kingdom. He's trying to set the standard up there saying, look, you don't meet the standard, you're not going to meet the standard. Only I can meet the standard you have to trust in me. I am the one who will know no sin. I am the one who will offer up my life as a sacrifice, the righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust. Secondly, Jesus is teaching us to imitate the love of our Father in heaven, right? You're called children of the Father in heaven. So live like him. Love like him. He's trying to teach us how... You know what it's going to be like in the kingdom? We enter the kingdom, it's going to be perfect love. Start practicing now. So that you may be children of your Father in heaven, Jesus says. So, as we conclude here in our theme of salt and light, what do we need to learn from what we've talked about today to be salt and light in the world? Right? You are salt and light. Now, how do you live as salt and light? So, my first question for you is this. Basically, are you living in salt and life? Would there be enough evidence in a court of law to convict you of being a disciple of Jesus Christ? Do you love in a way that's distinct from the world 
so that the world would say, wow, there's something different about this person. They, they love even the people that mistreat them. There's something different about them. They, they must be a Christian. Is that how you love? Is that what characterizes you? Or do you live just like everybody else? Secondly, as we consider the whole of the Sermon on the Mount up to this point, remember Jesus is giving us a manifesto or a declaration of nonconformity. This is how you are to not be like the world. This is how you are not to be like the culture around you. And so my question for you this morning is, are there areas of your life, are there behaviors in your life that are just like the pagans in the culture around you? Are you saying, I'm a Christian, out your mouth, but living like the culture around you? What behaviors do you need to change? Now, I'm not talking about changing behavior so that you can be saved. Please don't confuse me. Right now, I'm talking to people who you've professed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You've claimed the new birth. You're saying, I have a new heart. You've followed him in baptism. All this. For you, is there any difference in your life? Are you living differently than the world? And if not, what do you need to change? And what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? And lastly, more in line with the text exactly, are there enemies in your life that, need, that you need to love and pray for? This is, this is hard stuff, guys. This is, this is the, basically the, the pinnacle of the Sermon on the Mount. Are there enemies that you need to love and pray for? True children of God are characterized by a growing capacity to love even their enemies, just like their Father in heaven. May God give us the grace to love and pray for our enemies. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the teachings of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, I pray that you would work in us to will and to do for your pleasure. Father, please help us to love and pray for our enemies. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who knows they're not your child, who knows they need to turn in repentance to you, crying out for a new heart, a heart that desires you, Lord, I pray that you work in their lives, bring them to repentance. Father, we love you and we thank you for this time we've had together. Teach us how to love as you love. We ask this in Jesus' name.